Hello. Thank you for listening to the sermon from our Revive service. We hope it helps you learn more about God and allows you to grow closer to Him and in your faith. Good morning. That has got to be one of my all-time favorite songs. The message in Christ alone. It is so deep, so rich. I'm humbled this morning to have been asked to bring the message. I'm also humbled every time I think of the cross behind me. That symbol, that emblem of pain, vileness, God turned into a thing of beauty thing that is full of grace and love. Before we get into the text, there's something that I came across actually just Friday as I was doing some research, further research. And it has to do with how God sees us. How God sees you and me. I'm only going to spend a couple minutes on this, but for me, it was powerful. You are valuable. God is the creator and you are his creation. He breathed into your nostrils the breath of life. He created you in his image. He knit you together in your mother's womb. His eyes saw your unformed substance. He not only knows the number of the hairs on your head, but he knows your thoughts, your words, and your prayers before you even utter a sound. He has given man dominion over everything else that he has created. He has crowned you with glory and honor as the pinnacle of his final act of creation. You're a brand new creation. The old has passed away. You are new. Do you embrace that? The thought that came over me on Friday? I am new. New in Christ. Not who I was. Yeah, it's so simple. Yet do we truly embrace what God has done in our lives? You've been saved by grace, justified by faith. You are utterly secure in Christ, and nothing can separate us as we just sung. Nothing can pluck you from the hand of God. God will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. You have a new father now, but you also have a new family of brothers and sisters. You're part of the people of God. And together the life that you live now is by faith in Christ. To live is Christ, to die is gain. There is no loss. There is no downside. Don't live by your own power or understanding, but live by the Spirit within you. <laughs> that one hit me hard, because I fail a lot. I trust on myself a lot. And ultimately, I end up turning to God, which is where I should have turned in the first place. 
We are no more darkness, but we are light in the sun. Walk as children of light. You are the light of the world. You have been called. You have been chosen. You are now a saint, a servant, a steward, a soldier. You are a witness and a worker. You are victorious. You have a glorious future. You are a citizen of heaven. And we are ambassadors of the very living God. Uh, That may wash over some of you like nothing. Man. That hit me in the heart. And was something that I just had to share. Recognize who you are. In the eyes of God, you are something. You're not a nobody. You are distinct and set apart, sanctified by God for a purpose. Live in that. Embrace that. Today's message is going to be on a verse, one verse, that everybody in this room, I hope, knows. So, being that I am old school and I don't use slides, if you have your Bibles, open them to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. And if you are willing and able, please stand with me in the honoring of the reading of God's holy word. We will start with John chapter 3, verse 12. I am reading from the New American Standard. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let us pray. Blessed Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come together, Lord, on your day. Your day that is set apart from every other day, Lord, to simply honor you, to worship you, to raise our hands, our hearts, and our eyes to you. I pray, Lord, today that you put me on a back burner. Let your words be your words and not mine. I pray, Lord, that you touch the hearts of everyone here. Make us receptive to your seed. Let that seed take root and grow. Let us walk out of here, not just hearers, but doers of your word. We ask this all in the precious name of your holy son, the Christ. You all can sit down. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16, is probably one of the most beloved verses in the Bible. You watch football on TV or most any sporting event, you will eventually see somebody with a sign. John 3.16. I imagine every single, well, the vast majority of us here, 
Probably learned that in Sunday school as a small child. Probably the King James Version. Ain't nothing wrong with that. It is referred to as the golden text of Scripture. It's also referred to as the gospel in a nutshell. Unfortunately, I am of the opinion, and I believe that although a lot of people know this verse, a lot of people don't necessarily understand the richness and the deepness that is in that one little verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Four. Four. The first word. In the Greek that word is gar. Not the fish, but gar. Gar, when it is used, connects one verse with the previous verse or passage. That's its job. Sort of like conjunction, junction, what's your function? Anyway, sorry. Uh, yeah, I know. Schoolhouse rock. What it does, if we look back at verse 14, which says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It is connecting a historic event in the book of Exodus with what must happen to the living Lord. The Israelites had been delivered from Egypt. Do you remember that? They were wandering in the wilderness. And guess what happened? They got irritated. They started to murmur. They started to complain. Oh, it's so hot. Oh, we just keep walking and walking and we never get anywhere. We don't have any water. And the food that you gave us is terrible. That's exactly what they said. Read it. The food you gave us is terrible. Well, because of their murmuring, God sent serpents in their midst. And those serpents, am I supposed to stand still? Am I, am I messing things up for you? Okay. God sent serpents in the midst, and the serpents bit the Israelites. And many of them died. So the Israelites finally came to their senses and repented, turned back to God like they did a thousand times in the Old Testament. They came back to God and said, we're sorry. And what God did was he told Moses, make a serpent out of brass, set up on a pole and lift it up in the air. And anyone that looks upon that serpent will be healed. And that's what they did. But they didn't just look. And this is key, as we're going to see later on. They looked, but they had to look with belief. Belief that by looking, they would be healed. I believe it was, yes, it was. January 6th, 1850. Colchester, England. Massive, massive snowstorm. Paralyzed the town. There was a teenage boy. That teenage boy regularly attended church every week. But he couldn't get to his church because of the snowstorm. 
So he went to a little church around the corner that he had never been to before. It was a primitive Methodist church. I'd like to say it was a Baptist church, but no, it was a Methodist church. And yes, you can find God there. So he went to the primitive Methodist church. The pastor of that church was unable to get there. So they had a layman preaching that Sunday. And during his sermon, he continuously made the quote, you don't have to go to college to look on God. Anyone can look upon God. A baby, a child can look upon God. Continuously throughout his message. As he was preaching, he looked into the audience and he saw this teenage boy. <laughs> and his exact words were, Boy, you look miserable. Look to Jesus Christ. And kept on going. Now that teenage boy had been struggling with his faith. But those words, those simple words, the Spirit used to strum his heart. And he gave his life fully to the Lord that day. Does anybody know who that teenage boy was? Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon looked to Jesus Christ just as the Israelites looked at the serpent. But he had to look upon Jesus Christ with belief in what Christ was going and could do. So consistent with God's plan of redemption, Christ had to be lifted up just as that serpent was lifted up. And the object of all of this was that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Therefore, eternal life is found in Christ. Now, with that being said, let's look at the rest of the verse. For God so loved. God is a word that is used to define the nature. And it can be used of the Father. We know it can be used of the Son. And we know it can be used of the Spirit. All three are God. Is there anybody that disagrees with this? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the triune God. But it is how God's love is displayed. Unlike the pagan gods of the time that used fear. And pagan gods are not real. But people feared those gods and what they would do. The distant and impersonal gods of modern philosophy. The God of the Bible. The God we worship. Has a love for you that is so deep. Love is the Greek word agapo. Which is the noun form of agape. Dr. Vine, in the Dictionary of New Testament Words, states, This word, agapayo, expresses the deep and constant love and interest of a perfect being towards an entirely unworthy object, producing and fostering a reverential love, a reverent love in them towards the giver, God, and a practical love towards those, those who are partners of the same, a practical love towards each other, and a desire to help those that don't know God seek God. It's this 
love that motivates us to seek his grace. And that love is defined by the adverb so. God so loved the word. So is not a passive word. It's an active word. It's a degree of intensity where God gave what? His most precious, precious gift. Think for a moment of what you hold most dear in this world above all. What is the most valuable thing or person in your life? And then give it away. That's just the tip of the iceberg of what God gave. Four, God so loved what? The world. You can chime in, by the way. For God so loved the world. The Greek word for world is what? Anybody know? Cosmos. You knew that. Cosmos basically means the entire universe. But in a more limited sense, it also means the earth, the planet upon which we live. And frequently, cosmos, when translated the world, means the people the inhabitants of this world, us. Christ gave his life for all. I'm going to get on my soapbox for a second. I don't know if you agree with the doctrine of predestination or if you don't. I'm not trying to start an argument. But according to the profession and confession of faith, let me get this right. The expression of faith in the Westminster Confession. It says that by the decree of God from the manifestation of his glory, men and angels, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life, and others are foreordained to damnation. In other words, from the beginning of God time, God has chosen this sect of people for salvation. And this sect of people have no chance. You are going to hell. You're going to live an eternity of misery. And so be it. That is predestination. What I want to say is that according to scripture, Christ affirmed that he gave his life a ransom for many. And if you look at 1 Timothy, it actually says, he gave himself a ransom for all, the testimony given at a proper time. God's grace appeared bringing salvation to all men in Titus. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is also by the Apostle John. And truly, God is not willing that any should perish in 2 Peter. He doesn't want anyone to perish. That being said, the elect will be saved. But the elect are those who by their own free will have accepted the gift that God has given them. I can give you a gift right now. But you don't have to take it. 
I can put it at your feet, but you don't have to pick it up. I can put it in your car, and you can leave it in the trunk. A gift given must be received. And this gift of God, which is the greatest gift that could ever be given, unfortunately and tragically, is rejected by the majority of the world. But it doesn't have to be. Because it's laid at the foot of every single person. Four. God so loved the world that he gave. Giving is a characteristic of God. He gives life, the gifts of providence and provision we see every single day. And according to James, he is the source of all good gifts. But herein lies the truth of the gospel. It's not just the fact that God is love, but he gave his most precious son. His only begotten son. He gave him why? To effect the redemption of the world. In the gospel according to St. John, which is a book written by Dr. Westcott, he states that because John chose to use the word gave rather than the word sent, it brings out the idea of sacrifice and love shown by the most precious offering. Dr. Morris, in his complimentary book to that, states, his love is not a vaguely sentimental feeling, but a love that costs. God gave what was most dear to him. It was sacrificial. Four. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Only begotten. It's the Greek word monogenes. It has two parts. Mono means unique, only. Genos means race or stock. When it is applied to Christ, which it is used five times in the book of John, distinctly relating to Christ. It means unique in kind. Unlike anything else. Why? Christ is unlike anything else. In the Greek-English lexicon, it states it's used to mark out Jesus is uniquely above all earthly and heavenly things. It is also a reference to the origin of Christ. Because if we have a true understanding, we understand that Christ has always existed and has always existed in communion and relationship with the Father. When was God's plan of salvation and redemption for the world put in place? Was it after the fall of man? No. No. Was it after the ark? No. No, it was before the creation of the universe. God knew the decision of man. God knew there would be many that would not follow him. And God knew that in order for there to be forgiveness of sins, there had to be the shedding of blood, and it had to be perfect, holy, unblemished blood. The blood of God, Christ. In order for that plan to have been set in place, in order 
for Christ when he prayed, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world began. The glory that already existed in that relationship between him and the Father. In Colossians where it says, For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thorns, thrones, or dominions, or rulers, or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him, for he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ and his relationship with the Father and the glory that the Father bestows upon him has always existed. Therefore, the relationship of sonship between Christ and the Father has always existed. And since Jesus Christ... According to the writer of Hebrews, is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We know that has not and will not ever change. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him. Again we see the term whosoever. It reveals the all-encompassing and eternal. Oh, the eternalness and the universalness of God's love towards his people. Now when I say universal love. I want to make sure you understand I'm not talking about universalism. Universalism is a doctrine that says that uh, eventually everybody's going to be saved. No one perishes ever. And it's held to by certain, certain faith-based groups. But if we look simply at Matthew and at Revelation, it's quite clear that there's a very narrow road and a narrow gate and a very wide road and a very wide gate. And down that narrow road, few will pass into eternal life. But down the wide road, many, uncountable fathoms, will pass to eternal destruction. There is a consequence in not accepting the free gift of God. And it's an eternal consequence, it's not a timeout. It's not five minutes in the corner. It's not detention. It's eternal. This gospel is addressed to all of creation. And we look at the final invitation of the Bible in Revelation 22. It says, come. Whoever desires should take of the living water is a gift. Come who all are thirsty and drink from the river of life. Tommy Tinney says that by whosoever, the invitation is inclusive and indefinite. Salvation is not restricted to any race, color, or class, but is the heritage of all who will answer the call of God. The construction 
of the Greek of this phrase emphasizes personal trust and full commitment of life. Such an invitation requires a faith born of a whole soul, intellect, emotion, and will to God. So like I said earlier, what does it really mean to believe? I spent a lot of time researching this. There are a lot of people that believe in God. There are a lot of people that believe there was a Christ. The Bible says that there's a lot of people that are going to say, but I did this and I did this and I did this in your name. And what was God's response? I never knew you. I never knew you. It's one thing to know there is a God and a Savior. And it's another thing to truly believe in a God and a Savior. The word believe appears in the King James Version 40 times. In almost all those cases, it is translated from the Greek word pisteio. Yeah, try to say that 50 times fast. It is a present tense verb. It does not refer, refer to a one-time spiritual action. It refer, refers to an ongoing, constant spiritual action. The literal meaning of the word is the keeping on believing ones. To believe means this. To habitually place one's confidence in. To habitually trust in. To habitually rely upon. To habitually entrust oneself to. And to habitually commit oneself to. It means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with a belief that keeps on believing. A lot of you know I went through cancer a little while back. Sat in that third pew right there. And I've said this before in Sunday school class, but uh, there was a time in my life where I was mad, I was angry. I didn't know why I had to go through what I was going through. Carson and his family, I'm sure, can relate to a degree. A lot of times we ask why. But I went a step further. And I sat there and I refused to lift my hands. I refused to get happy during worship. I refused to acknowledge God simply for who he was. I was mad. I was not keeping on believing. What I learned as I grew during that time was that even in adversity... Not only is there growth, but there is life. I was talking to Rick before the service, and we were talking about some things, and I brought up the cancer, and I mentioned that even during that time, I had a ministry. 
I had a ministry to fulfill to those people around me that didn't have the hope that I had unfortunately set on a back burner for a period, for a season. I was able to talk and to encourage and uplift only after I had repented of my sin and only after I had regrasped that keep it on believing attitude where no matter what, God wins. No matter, you know, <laughs> there was a, a psychiatrist that had to come and talk to me about my living will and all this stuff. And um, they were talking about, you know, who I would, I would want to entrust with all these important decisions. And of course, you know, it was my wife. And then uh, they asked questions about, you know, well, how do I feel about dying if that happens? I'm good with that. Because according to the Bible, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It doesn't matter what happens to me. It's a win-win situation. There's no downside. That threw her for a loop. She could not grasp that. And you know what? That gave me an opportunity to explain why I thought that way. It gave me an opportunity to share Christ. So as we keep on believing, habitually entrusting ourselves, habitually committing ourselves, habitually trusting in God, it opens up doors of ministry and opportunity even in the darkest hour. I really want to say, whoo! Right now, because that excites me. So I did. Completely lost my place. Four, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Contrary to certain faith-based groups, the Bible does not teach annihilationism. We talked about this earlier. There are consequences, eternal consequences. The Greek word that is used for perish here is opolume. Now, opolume, uh, it's a very strong term that actually means to destroy utterly. Well, Brother Paul, you just said that the Bible does not teach annihilationism. Well, it doesn't. Although it means to destroy utterly, it does not suggest annihilation. Because if you look at Luke chapter 15, it talks about the prodigal son. And that very same word is used to describe the prodigal son. But there it is translated lost. Not destroyed, but lost. The prodigal son never ceased to exist. Dr. Vine again points out that the idea is not extension, but ruin, loss. The existence of being, or being in the existence of not well-being. It suggests to be delivered up to eternal misery. Four, God so loved the world that he gave his everlasting... <laughs> wow, I can't even say it now. For God so loved the world. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life is a promise for those who pursue a life of trust. But what is it? Because even those that perish, not knowing Christ, are going to exist eternally somewhere. The final abode of the, those that do not know Christ is called the second death. Death always has a connotation of separation. Therefore, the second death is eternal separation from God. Which, in my opinion, is the exact definition of eternal misery. Eternal life, on the other hand is eternal communion with God and all that that means. It is being in a state of glory, rest, and happiness forever and ever. It's not the angel sitting on a cloud. It's not, you know, we're going to have things to do in heaven. And I can't even fathom what heaven will be like. But just being able to eternally commune. Sort of like the way Adam and Eve walked with Jesus in the garden. An experience that none of us will never be able to comprehend until we get to the other side of glory. How fantastic and wonderful must that be? So in conclusion. This is a marvelous text that I think, again, has a richness and a deepness that we glaze over sometimes. You ever read a verse in the Bible 20 times, and each time you read it, it says something a little bit different because of the situation you're in? It's one of the reasons they call it a living word. It's never stagnant. This verse is a living verse that is so full You know, reach into it. Don't just read over it. Don't let the word of God become a check mark on a list, but something that we hold close to our bosom and we let infuse our lives with the richness of God. Maybe if we read it this way, the perfect God, who deeply and actively loved all of his creation without exception, that he sacrificially gave that which was his most precious gift, his son, who is uniquely above all that is in heaven and earth, so that anyone who places their confidence and trust, who relies and entrusts themselves to, and commits to a keeping on attitude will not be eternally separated from God into eternal misery, but will enjoy the wonders of God in a state of glory, rest, and happiness. If you're here today and you do not know and do not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, I plead with you. Don't leave here 
without talking to God. He loves you so much. And you can't be that dirty because the roof didn't fall in on us. If you've ever heard that excuse for not going to church. David was a murderer and an adulterer. The apostle Paul actively sought out Christians to murder them. And look what God did with their lives. If you don't know Christ, you're not too bad to come to Christ. If you're here and you do know Christ, but instead of being in the center of the road, you're eh, more on the curb and the berm, and you know you're not where you should be, man, open up the doors of your heart, let him point out to you the areas that still need tweaked. Because you got a job to do. You got a suit of armor to put on fully. I don't care whether you are a seasoned veteran of the family or if you're a babe in Christ. God is not done with you. Seek the Lord. Look upon Jesus Christ in belief of what he can and will do in your life. God bless you.